Welcome to Multicultural Minds, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of multicultural mental health. My name is Emily Unity, and I will be your host. Thank you for being here with us and listening to voices that are often not heard. Our guest today is Jeffrey Lai. He's the founder of Equal Ed, a social enterprise specializing in providing tailored education support to diverse young people, and is passionate about finding different ways to collaborate with others to create social impact. This podcast contains trigger warnings about culture and education. Thank you so much for being here today, Jeff. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Jeff. Uh, I guess a bit of background. So uh, I'm a migrant from Hong Kong. So I came here when I was mm. three and a half uh, for my parents mm-hmm. and uh, arrived in Australia. Uh, didn't speak a speck of English, um, mm. but yeah, kind of always got kept back in prep. Actually, my mum loves to tell this story <laughs> where my prep teacher, um, was trying to keep me back a year and my mom literally being the you know awesome mother that she is goes mm. on and she's like no my son can do you know grade one next year you you let him up there and like he'll show you yeah. and for some for some reason the teacher relented and let me let me up but like I was horrible nice. at English um just horrible in, like you know like it, it, when you're bad at English you kind of don't understand any other concepts because it's yes. all sort in English yes um but yeah, over time, I think like, you know, language definitely, you know, I, I, I was lucky to, to come here at, at an age where I was still quite, um, I guess, susceptible or easily mm-hmm. able to pick up languages. Um, but yeah, and then I guess fast forward a little bit more about me, like, you know, in uni, I, I did a Bachelor of Science. Uh, my main focus was neuroscience. Um, mm-hmm. Then after uni, um, I also did a stint in banking, uh, trying to mm-hmm. find out what I enjoyed, what I wanted to do. Um, but all throughout uni, I've been volunteering and, and uh, I, I, I guess I created this um, kind of group of young people that, that mm. supports, uh, you know, primary and secondary school students with, with brief tutoring. And we mainly mm. work with humanitarian migrant um, and uh, lower socio and economic status uh, students um, mm-hmm. with these free programs. And, you know, there was an opportunity to turn into a social enterprise, an opportunity to keep doing the great work that, that the team has been you know, doing for the last few years and and then yeah now today um, i'm doing equal ed full-time uh it's mm-hmm. grown into a social enterprise that works with local government non-profits private sector schools um and yeah i'm, I'm really fortunate to be able to work full-time on things that i love and work mm-hmm. with an awesome team that also loves what they do so yeah thank you so much for sharing that with me there's, <laughs> there's so many bits that i want to ask you about <laughs> you're changing the narrative of people that are just like you and it's like Mm. it's youth run and youth led um and I think that that lived experience basis from starting a company Mm. is really important because I I see a lot of innovations in the space where it's like migrant people is is a priority population let's try to address that but that often comes from like a third party perspective and it doesn't Mm. really take into account like the nuances of our experiences so it's really lovely it's grounded on that (laughs) thank you Something that I really am wondering about is what sort of shifted for you where you decided to take Equal Ed full time because going into like social enterprise work, you know, it's a huge risk. It's also, you know, lots of benefits, but also a lot of uncertainty. Um, Mm. Like where did Mm. the passion lie for you in that? Yeah, such a good question. And I think it wasn't so much like, um, for me at least, my journey was more gradual than Mm. than a flip. So Mm. for me, um, I was kind of, working uh, kind of part-time at the bank uh, mm-hmm. and doing part-time uni for my last semester. So I was only doing two subjects at uni um, and, and then, uh, you know, I was working four days a week at the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got to the point where I felt a little burnt out from banking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that definitely 
kind of added to it. It made me realize that like, you know, I was, uh, I was trying to, you know, work on multiple things at once uh, mm. and really trying to discover using my last semester at uni um, what I enjoyed and what my career w- w- would be. And I mm. realized that maybe the corporate side and the banking side isn't for me. And mm. simultaneously, I had this thing where, you know, I'd maybe nine to five at the bank but then at 5 30 i'd step in and then i'd I'd be working on equal ed and some of the Mm. projects we were doing and some of the people that we were supporting and i found that despite having worked the full day and i was tired from the moment i stepped into the bank but for some reason after the long day and i'm stepping home and i'm opening my laptop to work on equal ed i'm energized again so that was like a little indicator for me to go like hey maybe this is something that i really really enjoy doing and then there are many other factors too, like uh, me feeling like it wasn't just me who'd contributed. There'd been almost 30 volunteers a year that kind of goes through our doors to support the students. And they still mm. do to this day, um, um, you know, with regards to like our, our like uh, daily or, or three times a week after school sessions. We, we rely very heavily on the support of our volunteers to, to deliver those free homework support sessions. Um, and it's this idea that there's so many people that dedicated time and effort into this. And if I stepped away now, it might not continue. So yeah. the initial idea was to be there for two years, see where equal ed takes, takes, takes me. And then, um, you know, maybe hand it over, step off and do something else. But that was in mid 2019. We're now in 2022. So I mm. guess, yeah, it just, it just, it's, I just kept going and there were this next challenge and this next project. And, um, I think something really important that happened was this conversation with my parents as well. Um, mm. And my parents actually kind of nudged me towards quitting at the bank. Um, they, they mentioned to me like, and, and I guess, you know, it, it did mean a lot because, you know, having that support of your parents at that time definitely, you know, helped me make my decision. Cause I was indecisive. I was like, if I stay at the bank, I'll have that career trajectory. I'll have that financial stability. Mm-hmm. And my parents were like, well, well, you're still young. You actually have the liberty to take a risk. And not everybody your age has that liberty or or not everybody in general has that liberty to take a risk. Mm. Maybe you'd be like 10 years later and and you have family, so you don't have that liberty. Or maybe, you know, you need to support your mom and dad or or, Mm. or your your parents need you to have a stable job or your family needs you to have a stable job. You have this liberty. Go see where it takes you. If it's something that you genuinely want to try out, give it your Mm. all and see what happens. And my dad was saying, look, sometimes in life and most of the times in life, it's like, it's not a straight road. It, it's, it's, it's a windy road and you never know mm. what's around the corner. So you just kind of got to walk down that path that you feel inspires you and just see what happens. And I think that conversation also contributed to, to my decisions. And yeah, and then I dived in and then that's the most important thing at, to, to sometimes. It's about diving in because once mm. you've dived in things, you, you ha- you'll have challenges, you'll have many, many stressful times. Mm-hmm. But as you work through those times, um, things will kind of shape up and you'll kind of start having a direction and, and you'll learn on the job as well. And all the uncertainties become a little bit more certain. Um, so yeah, it was gradual, but there were many contributing factors as well. I really love that. Cause I was, I was going to ask like how your parents felt about it. That's so good that they encouraged you to really pursue something that, you know, take the risk and see where it goes. Mm, um, and this might mm. make you a lot happier, which it sounds like it really has. Mm. Um, I wonder do you feel like they've always had that sort of opinion of career stuff or do you think that that's changed as they've migrated? 
Yeah, I think I think my mom had always had a more well. I think both my mom and dad, relatively speaking, have have been quite liberal with me. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, the pressure was more like a broader cultural pressure, like right. a broader pressure about what I'd been brought up to admire or what my peers have been brought up to want to achieve. But I think my parents had always been relatively liberal. Having said that, I would say my dad's perspective on volunteering and Mm -hmm. community impact has taken time to evolve. So he might not have Mm -hmm. had said you have to do this or have to do that, but definitely with regards to volunteering and and supporting diverse communities, Mm. it was something I was never exposed to in Hong Mm. Kong. He, He grew up and he came of age in around the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, Hong Kong, which is, you know, a, a British colony at the time. And, mm-hmm. and you know, volunteering and support and that type of stuff never never occurred to him. He, he grew up in a lower middle class family. Um, and so it was about, you know, you look after your family because, you know, mm-hmm. like you, you don't really think about supporting other people when you can barely support yourself. So yeah. it's about finding that job, giving, you know, the majority of your paycheck to your parents so that you can support your siblings or your siblings can support each other. And and so it took him a while to understand why instead of focusing entirely on my university studies, I decided to go go volunteer and mm. and, and and you know without getting paid and without it benefiting my career, it seemed yeah. at the time. Um and it took a while for him to be like, well he's pers- persevered through you know through uni. He's 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 graduating now. He managed to mm. find a job at the bank. And he's still wanting to do this. <laughs> Maybe there's something in it. Like he's, he's like, you know, I, I like he, he was probably thinking, and this is me assuming he, what he, he might've been thinking, but yeah, yeah. I felt like there was a bit of a switch after I got the job at the bank because okay. I think I feel like I've proven myself as capable of finding a job. Mm-mm. So he's like, all right, the kid's going to be okay. Like he's, he's capable yeah. of finding a job. And then I think he also saw that I continued with Equal Ed despite having a job and despite still keeping up with uni. Mm. And, and I think he saw that, you know, it was something I was serious about. That's that's really wonderful. Um, <laughs> I really <laughs> like, like, the switch of, like, ah, oh, this isn't just a phase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's such a good way to put it. Like, that flip of realising it wasn't just a phase. Yeah. Is, is, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's <laughs> really, really wonderful. I I wonder about... Because a lot of the conversations that I've had of, and like definitely like my experience as well with navigating well-being in a Western culture compared to like how it is from an Asian background is such a wild ride. Mm, I was mm. like wondering what your parents sort of take was on you studying neuropsychology. Like I know it's more science-based, but discussions around like mental health. I think mental health is a topic that like it's never taboo in my household. That's fantastic. But it's also really discussed. Right, right, right. So I've never felt like I can't talk mm-hmm. about it, but I've also never felt the desire yeah. to talk about it, if that makes yeah. sense. So it's this weird weird in-between, mm. I felt like. I, I definitely feel a lot more comfortable speaking to my mom mm-hmm. about certain things, but it'd never be like from a mental health context. Yeah. It might be what I'm going through at uni and I'm stressed out yeah. or like I, I, I'll be, and that's where I feel like there's that in between where I feel comfortable telling my mother, my emotions or being vulnerable with my mother. Mm. Um, but I've never felt a desire to frame it in the context of mental health. And now that I'm literally having this conversation mm. right now, I'm starting to wonder if it's because of the, vocabulary that yeah. we might use or have yeah. 
where, right, like I, I feel comfortable being vulnerable, mm-hmm. but the, and I speak to my parents in Cantonese. Mm-hmm. So I feel like to a certain extent, maybe it's my own understanding of the Cantonese vocabulary, but also maybe because the Cantonese vocabulary just is insufficient mm-hmm. in its use and its words to describe mental health, where I've never framed it as I might have with my friends when we talk about mm-hmm. mental health. Or, or right now, like, you know, I, I go to school and we, we have mental health workshops. I'd never frame it with my parents the way I frame it with my students or with the cohorts we work with. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so it, it, it was actually, it's, that's a very thought-provoking question you mm-hmm. asked because I'm reflecting and I realise I've never felt uncomfortable being vulnerable in my own household, mm-hmm. especially with my mom. Mm-hmm. But I've never discussed my mental health or, or discuss my vulnerabilities in the context mm. of mental health mm. or using the language and dialogue of mental health, which, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to me as I, as I reflect on it. I highly resonate with that. Um, it's, it's very <laughs> similar in mine. I remember I, I still make jokes about my mum's love language being a ball of cut fruit. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> But 100%, like the way that, you know, I've always felt like I could be vulnerable with my mom in certain settings, but mm. not specifically using those words. Mm. Um, they just, I don't know, they just didn't really come up. And it's sort of code switching between, you know, being with your family and using certain languages yeah. or just being a certain way. Yeah. And then with my like Western friends, definitely talking about mental health and using this sort of yeah, language. Um, I wonder like, you know, that there must be like a, a vocabulary like gap between the actual languages. Mm. Um but even though like you're comfortable being completely vulnerable, yeah. does it ever feel like that there's sort of an elephant in the room or any time, or do, mm. do you feel like you just communicate about it differently? I think with my mom, it's definitely mm-hmm. more that I communicate about it differently. I think mm-hmm. with my dad, it's less about there's an elephant in the room where mental health isn't talked about, but it's just sometimes like, and this is especially when I was younger. Um, this is a, maybe a weird sidetrack, but I also feel like it's relevant <laughs> background context. So I went on exchange, um, during my third year at uni and, um, I went to the UK, nice. but surprisingly in the UK, I actually hung out with a bunch of people that were also on exchange from Hong Kong. Nice. So that was really cool because I was like, I, I've always identified, like I always had this dual identity where I'm like, I'm Australian, but mm. I'm also uniquely have my roots or have a part of me as Hong Kong mm. and Hong Kong will always have a special place in my heart. My mm. aunties are there, my cousins are there. And, mm. and it's such an awesome time every time I go back. I have such fond memories. Mm. And so, but when, when I, you know, actually started hanging out as a group with people my own age, mm. um, I think there was this like whole trajectory where I almost felt I was like boxed in. Like right. there was this parameter that they would set up about like how individuals should act or how Hong Kong people should act. And I felt like, and, and this is just me or my analysis of the situation. I've never actually asked them, you know, or had a really in-depth conversation. But I felt like I was, they, they didn't have this parameter or box for foreigners or for other people. They might just say, oh, it's a difference in culture or like, that's just how they are. But because I spoke to them in Cantonese and I spoke mm-hmm. Cantonese fluently and I looked like I was from Hong Kong, mm-hmm. I was also, I think, subliminally put into this box. And there would be a lot of things that I felt quite natural doing in Australia with my mates, like that mm. might be a little bit, you know, like, for example, you know, uh, on a road trip, I'd like, you know, wind down the windows and we'd sing really loudly. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, if I wasn't if, like, they would be accepting and be like, oh, that's just how like, you know, the Westerners do it. But because yeah. I was like, 
speaking fluent Cantonese and looked like I was from Hong Kong, there was like right. a certain judgment, like, is he pretending to be, you know, someone he's not? Oh, like, yeah. why is he acting like this? You know, mm-hmm. Hong Kong people don't act like this. <laughs> but, and that was like this, it was a very tough six months for me because I mm. wanted to fervently hold on to my identity mm-hmm. that I knew I, who I was and that I was confident with. Um, but at the same time, I was constantly trying to be shoved into this box about like how I should act and mm-hmm. judgments were being passed about why I was acting the way I was acting. Yeah. But um, that aside, I feel like coming back from it, I felt like I understood the Hong Kong context maybe a little bit better. Okay. But my linguistic capabilities in Cantonese also increased mm-hmm. because within that setting and within a setting where everybody spoke Cantonese and I realized first how deficit my vocabulary was. Like I might be, I thought I was fluent and I thought I could speak, <laughs> but my, my vocabulary was like not great uh, as, it, as it turned out. Like when, when I was kind of put in that setting where like, you know, you might be having like conversations about differences in culture. Mm. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to explain this. I go round and round in circles and, and it's not yeah. a very compelling conversation um, when you have one party who is completely capable and have full control of the language and another party who, speaks fluently and then doesn't speak with an accent but like struggles with vocab like half the time um but I think I came back so huge side huge sidetrack but how this ties back is I think I came back and I I I was much more capable of communicating in Cantonese to my parents right oh yeah because through through that experience I was forced into saying where I wasn't just communicating on a day-to-day basis about what we want to eat or like where we want to go but I was also contending with like this cultural difference and discussions about why I was acting different to my peers. Cause I think to a certain extent, they also wanted to understand me mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, even though I never discussed with them their intent behind their actions, we had discussions about, you know, our differences and, and, you know, and, and, and certain elements and there would, there would be many late night conversations in Cantonese. And I think that added to my capacity over six to eight months on how I you know, expressed myself. And then I guess from there, so I guess your initial question was, was there an elephant in the room or did I ever feel like there was an elephant mm. in the room with my parents? I never felt there was, but I always felt like there was this gap in my ability to express myself. But right. coming back from there, like I would always get so frustrated when I was younger, when I'm like, can I, mom, can I say this to you in English? And I'd say it to her in English. And I'm like, mom, I don't feel like you're understanding what I'm trying to say. Oh. Um, and it'd be, I'd be frustrated. My mom's like, why are you getting frustrated at me? I'm really trying <laughs> to understand you, you know? Um, yeah. After that, I felt like almost, I, I'd gotten the basic foundational skills to express myself. And the more I expressed myself, the better I got at it. And it was just like self um, I guess almost self-supporting cycle mm-hmm. where I got better and better at it. And, and so again, I feel like when my mom is around, I feel like my dad is like, like kind of like leads it to my mom a little bit sometimes mm-hmm. with regards to these kind of, I guess, more sensitive or more like emotional conversations. Mm-hmm. But there'd be times when my mom is like away or maybe she's gone to Hong Kong by herself or it's just dinner with my dad and myself for whatever mm-hmm. reason. And we also have great conversations. So Damn. when when the opportunity arises and when I feel the need to, I never really felt that there was an elephant in the room around my mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also feeling like, you know, there might be a chance where there are certain things that I just never felt the desire to discuss to my parents about. Yeah. And I've also had amazing friends and support systems where I've been able to have those discussions elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So... So, yeah, because, you know, sometimes there's people in your life that you go to for certain things mm-hmm. um, and not for other things. And mm-hmm. I think 
I also have a really I'm very fortunate to have an amazing support system of friends and, and social networks that, that I'm able to go to. But yeah, the feeling of an elephant in the room or the feeling that I can't speak in a particular way, it's never really come up, but definitely it took me time to, to get the vocab, I think, to, to express myself. And even then, it's never really in the terms of mental health. I, I want to highlight like how important it is that you're sharing this. Because work, working as a mental health professional, when mm. you do happen to have like conversations about multicultural mental health, there's a revelation moment for some people, particularly around like, you know, cultural awareness trainings and stuff like yeah. that, where they're mm. like, you know, mental health is taboo in a lot of cultures. Mm. And then I know a lot of professionals that unfortunately think that that's the case for everyone that's from a diverse background mm. um, and mm. think like no one can talk about it. And no one feels comfortable being vulnerable with their parents. And like, there are definitely a lot of us that don't, but yeah. like your story is really important you're very comfortable being vulnerable with your parents mm. and the bit there is like navigating the language and like the communication about it and yeah. I think that's so interesting so important to highlight mm. I wonder because with your work with equal ed you know yeah. supporting children and young people from low socioeconomic backgrounds and particularly migrant children mm. how do you feel like well-being and mental health sort of comes into play there because for me, mm. whenever I wasn't doing so well at school, it was always something else. Mm. But I, I never had the language to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with regards to like kind of like navigating mental health, especially with the diverse cohorts, I think mm-hmm. it always comes to mind more, I guess, the like the, the workshops that we might run because we, we specifically focus around mental health on some of those workshops. And it, I think a lot of the work we end up doing is around destigmatization. And, and reaching out for support mm. because what we find with some of the schools that we work with and we, we, you know, we work with the teachers as well and the careers counsellors as well as the mental health counsellors that, that are there and it's always like oftentimes we work with year 12s because it's, it's kind of like an especially stressful year like there mm. are many stresses in life already maybe for, yeah. for these cohorts and then you've got year 12 that in general is another stressor and, mm. and, and you'll, you'll often find stories where you know, these year 12 students are suffering from day one, but they don't speak mm-hmm. up about it. They don't speak mm-hmm. to anybody about it until like September and, and their, their, their exams are in a month. And then they're like, hey, I want to submit an application for C's. Um, and, and C's is essentially uh, like a support system available mm-hmm. for VC students mm-hmm. to apply for like, they call it special consideration, but it's just essentially, you know, consideration for other right. circumstances because yeah. I, I feel like it shouldn't be, for me, I, I don't like phrasing a special consideration because yeah. everyone goes through tough times. It's actually just a system in place that ensures that you're assessed yeah. equally to your peers yeah. Yeah. Um, and you get the same opportunity. So it's just consideration of, of the external factors. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we realize is like, if this these students reached out in February or March, they could have been given a, a, a range of other supports throughout between February and September. And they probably wouldn't have had to, had to go through it alone. And so what I realized is a lot of the things that we have to contend with oftentimes is about reaching out mm. and, and actually taking that step to go seek support. And, and in addition to that, like kind of like driving home the message that how you respond to stresses might be different to how other people respond to stresses. Mm. And just because the way you respond might not be what your parents expect or what your culture expect or what you expect of yourself mm. doesn't make it invalid. Yeah. It is completely valid to, you know, different people respond to stresses differently. Mm. And and you might compare yourself to your cousin and how they're responding 
to that particular stress mm. and you're like wow they're responding so well i'm literally a mess i shouldn't be this i should be stronger i don't you know i shouldn't i just shouldn't need to go and reach out for help but the reality is maybe your cousin or, or whoever that you're comparing yourself to has a different family environment mm. maybe they're not working a part-time job maybe they're doing different subjects mm. there, there are a lot of different things and may and, and most of all they're a different person and and so you're allowed to respond differently even if everything else holds true and just for the pure fact that you're a different person it's okay that you respond differently to different stresses your responses are still valid and because they're valid it's okay to acknowledge them and after acknowledging them it's okay to go out and seek the resources you need mm. to help you get over it um or rather overcome it yeah um yeah so that's kind of often the the I, I feel like the challenges that we work with and and oftentimes because, you know, with students, we might work with them an hour or two hours a week or we might work with them, you know, one or two workshops a term. Mm. Um, we try our best to really dig deep. We do like anonymous kind of like activities where people can mm. put their stresses out anonymously and we have a discussion and it, everybody feels kind of like it's a safe space and they can also understand, hey, I'm not the only one going through this and they collaboratively work on a solution. Most often it's about destigmatization, and most often it's about making them feel like their feelings are valid Mm-mm. and helping them navigate to acknowledge that and then go go seek help to help them overcome whatever challenges that they're going through. I really love that because I think, um, obviously I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I think that people often, you know, understand that we have different learning styles, but they don't apply mm. that to other areas of life. And mental mm. health is no different. Like we have different ways of experiencing hardship and therefore different ways of coping. And yeah. there's so much like comparison and like trying to like compare your pain to someone else's pain and invalidating mm. yourself. But mm. I think it's about meeting people where they are and trying to understand how to support someone in the way that they need, which might be different mm. to you. And that's completely okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I really love that. And I think that education settings are just such a amazing opportunity to really not just explore like learning curriculum, but like about mm. ourselves and about the way that we navigate the world more generally. Absolutely. And I think it goes both ways as well. Like even as I guess the practitioner in this particular setting, mm. um, every time I run a workshop, I feel like I'm more cognizant of like my own, emotions mm. or the things that I go through and and I think just because you know I'm 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 in a in a right now in settings where my position might be to facilitate discussions and, mm. and you know help students feel validated for, for whatever they're going through mm. it's also helped me reflect and realize that I've actually and at times probably still go through the same thing mm. where I'm like I'm feeling stressed or I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling sad and I'm like, but this person is going through similar things and they're okay. And, mm. and you know, like, like, and I need to remind myself, no, I'm, I'm me and these are my emotions. I need to validate that it's okay that these stresses bring on a stress response. Mm-hmm. That's why they're called stresses. <laughs> um, and okay, what are the resources available to me? How can I get the support I need to then actually overcome these stresses? Mm. Um, and, and support doesn't always need to be um, professional. Having said that, when you do need professional support, I think it's absolutely crucial that, that you mm. go do it. And I've, I've reached out for professional support at different points in time myself. Mm. But sometimes it could be social. Sometimes it could be, you know, like it could be something that doesn't involve another person. It could be yeah. just listening to music or taking a walk. Um, 
and and yeah it could come in many different shapes and forms absolutely yeah there's there's no silver bullet and coping looks mm. very different for everyone and yeah. i like having like a little like a toolkit i guess and like sometimes yeah. one tool doesn't work anymore so <laughs> yeah so you're gonna one. try it with different tools different yeah. combinations of tools yeah yeah, and yeah. Like me sitting with like my weird <laughs> box of mess around me and just trying different things <laughs> but it's what it's what works for us and yeah I think that's, it's really lovely that you acknowledge that and celebrate it too. Mm. I'm just going to ask you one wrap-up question and I acknowledge yeah. that it's very big. Um, <laughs> if you had to tell listeners one thing about multicultural mental health, what would it be? Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a big question, but also a really, really great question. <laughs> I think sometimes it can be easy to categorize multicultural mental health into one category Mm -mm. but I think it's also important to remember as the name suggests it's very multi Mm -mm. so there are many variations and and a diverse range of experiences Mm. of mental health or stigma towards mental health or Mm -hmm. what support means across the multicultural um I guess communities Mm. that 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 we 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 share Um, and I think, you know, just as we might kind of understand that there are, you know, different, when we look at the individual level, we might say individuals experience mental health a little differently. Mm. Um, it's important to not overly rely on that categorization that it's multicultural mental health and that therefore these are the things that multicultural individuals might experience mm. or go through. And we touched on this before about how, like, you know, there are many individuals from multicultural backgrounds that where, where they feel like they can't speak to their parents or their families mm. or their peers about mental health. But there are also many examples where they do feel that's comfortable for them. Mm. And being able to understand that within this category, there are diverse individuals mm. and that we can, in order to fully understand and comprehend what the individual needs, um, it's about asking questions and asking mm. them with empathy and speaking to others with empathy um, and interacting with empathy. Um, mm. And I think being able to kind of do that um, also really, really helps. Um, mm. And yeah, I think, yeah, that, that's, I guess that, that one message and really glad we managed to touch on it as well during the podcast earlier, which is, yeah, as the name suggests, multicultural really does mean a very diverse group of people with mm. a multitude of different experiences and and you never really know what an individual has experienced or might be experiencing right now until you really go and extract and ask questions and um, Mm. as a rule of thumb I feel like it's always good not to overgeneralize and kind of you know keep curious and keep empathetic um, and and continue exploring um, when you're working with um, and be sensitive when you're working with diverse people um, across the board or people in general Um, absolutely yeah that's that's my my take-home message yeah thank you I I have a very dumb big smile on my face because the word that was coming to mind was curious the whole time and then you said it um yeah yeah. we just synergize we linked up and (laughs) really good (laughs) yeah that's awesome thank you so much for your time if um if people wanted to continue having these conversations with you what's the best way that they could reach you yeah absolutely so you can find me on linkedin um Jeffrey Lai. My last name is L-A-I. You can, I guess, reach me by email, 
Jeffrey. So jwfrui.lai at equaled.org. So E-Q-U-A-L-E-D.org. You can also hit up Equal Ed's uh, social media sites, uh, Equal Ed AU on, on Instagram, uh, or just search up Equal Ed on, on Facebook and connect mm. with us there. Um, but yeah, please feel free to reach out. We'd be very happy to connect with, with whoever uh, would like to have a chat. Thank you so much for your time. I've, I've really thoroughly enjoyed this chat and I've also learned a lot. So thank you. No, likewise. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my experiences, to, to reflect. I definitely learned something new about myself, I feel like, <laughs> through this. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's such a privilege to be able to chat to you and, and be on this podcast. So thank you so much for having me. Nah, nah. Definitely. Pleasure <laughs> is all mine. Thank you for listening to Multicultural Minds, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of multicultural mental health. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website at www.multiculturalminds.org. Thank you again for being here with us and listening to voices that are often not heard.